This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Working Overtime, the advice-focused Triscuit under the aged fine cheddar that is working. I'm Isaac Butler. <laughs> and I'm June Thomas. Isaac, what have you got for us today? Well, June, this week's Working Overtime is actually inspired by something you said in the last Working Overtime, which, to make a long story short, <laughs> is about learning from, well, crap. You don't mean literal crap, right? No, June, I do not mean literal crap. <laughs> I mean learning from bad art. Mm. Let's be honest, most art is bad, right? The rule of thumb is that maybe one in 10 works of art in a given field are good. Far, far fewer than that are great. So a lot of the time when we're reading, going to museums, watching movies, whatever, what we're actually going to wind up experiencing is art that isn't very good, that doesn't work, that is in some fundamental way in bad taste or just kind of sucks. <laughs> Isaac, I'm realizing that we might have different standards. I mean, other than when I was a professional critic who had to watch and write about shows, whether I wanted to or not, the combination of like selecting things to experience based on my interests, my expertise, or the gatekeeping of arts institutions or publishers means that I feel like more than seven or eight things out of 10 that I read or see or watch or whatever meet the decent to good threshold, but let's not get lost in the weeds of ratings because I know you want us to learn from that which is indisputably not great, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I was thinking, look, if you're going to encounter mediocre to bad work, you know, whether it's 20% of the time or 90% of the time, you got to learn how to learn from it and how to take inspiration from it, not just at your rage at it, which mm -hmm. can be inspiring, but let's, let's talk about other forms of inspiration. Mm -hmm. Now, here is where you actually inspired me. You talked about having this experience a bit at the Edinburgh International Fringe Festival, where you saw a show that you just fucking couldn't stand, <laughs> and you wound up finding the process of watching it. Let's put it in your words generative. Can you tell our listeners about that in case they missed that episode? I sure can. So the first show that I saw at this year's Fringe was just awful, like just bad, 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 bad. Normally, I would have come out of that show and just ripped it to pieces. But there was something about the setting, you know, the commitment to making art and the willingness to try things and the fact that the performers put themselves out there. It just made me want to just not do that. And 
I was still aware of all the flaws that the show had, but instead of focusing on them, I left that room thinking, okay, what would you do that would be better? What kind of show would you make on that topic? And it really was pretty generative. <laughs> well, before we go any further, I just think it's worth pausing over some stuff you said there because you had this experience kind of accidentally, but you yeah. could take those questions. Why isn't this working? How would I fix it? How would mm. I make something completely different about the same idea? And if you can ask those questions intentionally, kind of keep them in mind, you know, when you're like, oh, this is bad. Oh, right. I have these questions. It can lead to some really interesting places, I think. Absolutely. One of the hardest parts of doing creative work is generating ideas. You know, it doesn't work to just put think of an idea on your to do list. So responding to something that you've seen and taking it as a jumping off point and maybe figure out where it went wrong, how it could have been better, why it failed. That's great. That's hugely helpful. It's the basic building block from which you can create an entire idea mansion. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that idea swimming pool, an idea three-car <laughs> garage. <laughs> anyway, we'll have a lot more to say about learning from bad art after this. Hey, listeners, June Thomas here. Do you have any tips or questions about the creative process? If so, get in touch and share your advice or ask us your questions. You can email us at working at slate.com or even better, you can call us and leave a message. That's 304-933-WORK. All right, now back to Working Overtime. June, I missed you so much during that incredibly long break. <laughs> I want to talk a bit about something I learned in graduate school that I think is really helpful here, whether a work of art is good or bad, which is descriptive criticism hmm. as opposed to prescriptive criticism. And, and what that means is trying to the best of your ability to describe the actual work of art in front of you as the inroad to critique. You don't just stop mm. there, but it's like, how can you describe the thing in front of you? In particular, it's really helpful if you can sort of separate the terms or the purpose of a work, you know, what what is this work's overall project from the execution? You know, the first is about what's the subject matter? What's going on thematically? What is this work trying to do? And the execution is, of course, how does it go about doing it? Execution isn't just was the acting good, you know, was there subject verb agreement? It's <laughs> about all the kind of craft level decisions. Why is this painting in watercolor instead of oil? Why yeah. is this adaptation of Haruki Murakami's short story Sleep a musical, you know, et cetera, and so <laughs> forth? Does this make any sense to you? It does. And I have to mention that one approach to criticism that just makes me angry, actually, is the this book wasn't what I wanted it to mm. be. So what? That's so irrelevant. You have to engage with a work of art on its own terms. But I think it can also be really, really useful to just consider the creator's most fundamental choices, you know, and then ask if they were. But yeah, that's a great place to start. And it's also worth saying that, you know, those terms are open to critique, right? You have to consider mm -hmm. it on its own terms that those terms could be bad. You know, it's totally yeah. possible those terms are bad. And then that's an interesting thing that's worth talking about. It can be really hard to figure out the terms of the work of art and what its project is. Like, that's a complicated, you have to be really open-minded kind of process. 
it can kind of be unpleasant when the work is bad, right? To be like, yeah. I'm going to just be really open to this thing that also yeah. is driving me crazy. How do you practice the habit of mind of getting curious at the exact moment when you actually feel judgmental? Oh, I wish I could say that I always absolutely ace this test. You know, it can be fun to revel in a work's failings. Sure. You know, the truth is that harsh reviews are the most popular ones. And we all like to read things to fill from time to time, you know, at least among friends. But I do try to get something from everything I read or watch or whatever. That might be entertainment, enlightenment, information. And if I don't get those things, I can at least get insights into what was wrong with it, right? Our time is precious. I, I really value my time. So if I see something that is bad or almost worse, boring, Definitely I at worse. least want to learn something from it, you know? And I have made a practice of taking this approach. And it has meant that I spend less time being mad at bad art for wasting my time and money, because that really is unproductive. That does nothing for you. It just leaves you mad. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, and unless you're someone who finds pure rage generative, <laughs> it's probably not going to leave you in a place to to make work. Yeah. I'm wondering as well, because like you have so much experience editing, and editing is this delicate art that's a mix between, well, particularly when you're at somewhere like Slate or, you know, a, mm. a media company, you're trying to help the piece become the best version of itself. And you also have the needs of the institution you're working for, right? It yeah. also has to fit yeah. what, what Slate wants to do, right? So it might be that I turn something in where the best version of it is like a fragmented, you know, lyrical essay that's doing these. And it's like, well, that's, that's not what Slate needs to do. So you have yeah. to kind of balance all of these things. And I'm wondering how you navigated that tension between, you know, the work of great writing and how to make it better in front of you and the needs of Slate. And if there's anything we can learn from your editing experience to how we think about learning from bad art. The thing that stands out to me from your question is the gatekeeping function of an editor. You know, mm -hmm. people are forever complaining about gatekeeping and obviously it can serve to maintain the status quo in a negative way, but it is a really important part of being an editor or curator or producer. Yes, gatekeeping is both necessary and good is the thing that, you know, is, is hard to admit, but it's like there's yes. bad gatekeeping out there, but the actual yes. act of gatekeeping is important. Important and necessary, indeed. And when you're making an initial decision about taking a piece, for example, for somewhere like Slate, yes, the first question is, is this a good idea? Does the argument make sense? Is it interesting? Is it fresh? But if you are an editor at a magazine, you are being paid to help that magazine succeed. And part of that, in a weird way, is protecting the magazine. You cannot publish crap because people see crap, they will not come back to this magazine to look for more crap, you know, like every decision you take is potentially hurting the publication. And that's maybe a, a big thing to put on your shoulders, but it's necessary. Uh, you know, it isn't about whether you agree with the idea or whether you like the writer. It's about what works and what works for this outlet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that might seem a bit off topic in a way, but we do set our expectations based on where something is appearing. The bad show that I saw that kind of generated this episode was on the free fringe. There is no charge going in. You are just asked to make a donation when you leave. If you go to a show like that, you expect some curation, but the bar is infinitesimally lower <laughs> than, say, 
you know, an Edinburgh International Festival show in the Usher Hall. And you have to treat those things differently. Just to say a piece in the New York Times should be judged more harshly than a tweet from a dude with two followers, right? Absolutely. I mean, and then there's, of course, the second thing that we were talking about, which is execution problems. I am wondering a bit about that show at the Fringe. I'm not asking you to out who it was. And, you know, I know that we have to maybe be a little cagey about details. But but what was it that was off about the execution for you when you had to answer that question? How would I do it better? What did you come up with? That's a really perceptive question, because the first thing that struck me about this show was that it was in the wrong genre. It was supposed to be a comedy show and it was set up as a comedy show and there was a comedy related word in the title. And in the show, there was a line where the performer said something like, I wrote all these jokes the week after X happened. And I thought, sweetie, you didn't. You didn't write a single joke. And the (laughs) fact that you think you did worries me because now I wonder if you would even recognize a joke if one ran onto the stage and grabbed the microphone from you. You know, like that was very, Mm. I don't know. It was a cause for concern, let us say. But the topic of the show was wrestling with big feelings, a situation that a lot of people struggle with. And if the performer had shared their experience with these feelings and told just a story from their life, not as jokes, so-called, but as reflections, as insights, I actually think it might have been moving and helpful. They were a trained performer. They did have certain skills of, you know, making an audience feel comfortable. They Mm. were not hopeless. The show just wasn't the right genre. Mm -hmm. It also needed an editor. I cannot believe that they had had any dramaturgical work done on the script. I mean, it came from their heart. And I appreciated that. But it wasn't a show, you know, it needed structure, it needed polishing, it needed any feedback whatsoever. And I also think, and this is a little bit specific perhaps, that there was a structural problem with it being a festival show. At the Fringe, almost everything is about an hour. Admittedly, some shows are maybe one and a half hours, but they're very rarely less than an hour. Mm. And this person had the performance space for an hour, but they did not have an hour's worth of material. And, you know, it kind of makes sense. This particular festival where there are visitors running around town trying to see as many shows as possible, you need to have a predictable length show. People probably wouldn't go out of their way to go to a venue for 20 minutes. So, you know, it was just a mismatch. The performer did not have anything like an hour's worth of material, but they had to fill an hour and there was nothing that could be done about that. So those are three things, two of which were definitely addressable. The third well, it was addressable, but it was, you know, right in the very... In the fundament of the... Yeah. yeah. You know, it's interesting when when Anne and I go and see movies or plays or whatever, part of the joy of our relationship is taking them apart on the subway ride home. And being like, okay, what worked? What didn't work? What would make this yeah. better? What is it trying to do? You know, it's fun to have a partner to do that sort of stuff yes. with if you go, go to see things. Like, I remember yeah. we went to go see the movie Joyride, right? It's like a girl's trip, mm. hangover, all Asian uh, kind of cast yes. thing. Yes. And it was really fun. We wanted to see a raunchy summer comedy. We, you know, we were really in the mood for it. It really hit that spot. But we yeah. were like, what would have made it better? What could have made it better? And what we realized actually in in looking through the film is it's a comedy. There's almost no what you would formally call jokes in it. There's <laughs> almost no thing where there is a setup and a punchline where someone yeah. says something witty 
in response to a situation that is humorous. It's actually all antics and plot. Yeah, yeah. And it was really interesting to think about that, about like, well, where are the jokes? Can you do a comedy that doesn't have jokes, you know? And that leads to some interesting thoughts about comedy. So I also think that another thing that's helpful for this process is to uh, drag a friend to the crap with you and have them help you break it down. Oh, so true, so true. Well, when we come back, we'll talk about a different kind of crap successful crap. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listeners, this is June again. I just want to remind you that if you are enjoying working overtime, we would love for you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, we would very much appreciate your rating or reviewing the show. It really does help new listeners to find us. And if Overcast is your app of choice, as it is for me, please hit the star to recommend the episode to others. All right, one final kind of crap we have to discuss here, June. Crap that is, at least externally, quite successful. Blockbuster movies, award-winning novels, the paintings of Ellsworth Kelly. There's <laughs> always something that the culture has accepted that leaves us cold, right? That's part of having your own taste, yes. is there's going to be stuff that people aligned with you love that you don't. And I, I had mm. an experience once, uh, this is like 15 years ago, mm. that was really instrumental in, in my feelings about this. And at the time, was working in Broadway marketing. And so we would often have to go see her clients' shows. Uh. And they were often not very good. And I remember one time (laughs) we had comps to Les Mis, which I had seen more than once before, loved it as a Mm. kid, you know, don't love it as an adult. And (laughs) I actually ran into a friend who writes musicals. Uh, You know, he had had a hit Broadway show and stuff like that. And I was like, he's like, oh, hey, what are you up to tonight? I was like, man, I have to fucking go see Les Mis. Can you believe it? I have to go see Les Mis. It's, It's such cheap crap. And he said, you know, you can really learn a lot from something that is really successful that you don't like. Mm. If you just ask, why on a craft level is this successful? And I really took that to heart. You're not asking, as some critics do, what's wrong with the audience that this is successful, right? Because yes, I mean, that's an yes. important question. That's totally fine. But that's separate from our purposes. What you're asking is... What is it actually doing well that that's causing it to connect to people? And you know what? Yeah. I had a great time at Les Mis. I kind of grew to respect it. And I kind of like Les Mis now as a result. But what you got to tell us, what is it about Les Mis that makes it popular? Okay. I don't think this is the whole thing, but uh, this is one thing that I realized on a craft level that it's doing, which is that nearly every song can be sung in a medley 
with nearly every other song in the show. And in fact, they often do. If you listen to that musical again, you will notice they're often bringing in verses and choruses from various other songs because the melodic motifs match up. The chord structures match up. They sort of interlock in this really pleasurable way you know wow. one day more and at the end of the day and do you hear the people sing you know they, you can do them all at the same time and so the yeah. show is constantly reinforcing itself in your brain you leave the show already knowing a great deal of the show and having mm-hmm. it in your head so it establishes this kind of beachhead in your brain and then it just expands from there wow First of all, I love that. And I, it really makes me want to go and watch Les Mis to kind of hear it for myself. And it also has made me realize that that's kind of true for West Side Story, which I think is an absolutely brilliant piece yeah, of art. Yeah, Maybe totally. my favorite musical. Um, and it's not, you know, most musicals have some kind of reprise. But that one you're constantly getting. It's constantly coming back. And yeah, it's really effective. Yeah. And the orchestration is also constantly yeah. referencing it, you know, and stuff like that. I mean, it's really clever. Wow. So I, I'm just wondering, have you ever had an experience like that where you decided... Okay, you know, everyone loves Titanic. I hate Titanic. What is it that Titanic does or, you know, whatever? Yeah. So when it was my job to do what I could to make Slate's podcasts succeed, I really tried to study successful podcasts outside of our network, some of which I thought were junk. For example, there are true crime podcasts that are, in my view, objectively terrible. The hosts just read from Wikipedia or worse, take information uncredited from writers who have spent a lot of time doing research and reporting. These hosts leave instructions to their off-mic producers in the final edit. I mean, it's just, oh God, that maybe that's, oh, but honestly, that almost seemed like the worst sin. They repeat themselves. They spend more time talking about themselves than they do the supposed topic of the episode. I mean, I could go on and on, obviously. These shows often are massive. And sometimes the things you observe can be helpful. These shows are often really, really, really good at connecting with listeners and kind of building community. And they really let their audience know that they appreciate them and respect them. And that is important. And we don't always all do that. Mm. So I did learn from that. But then there were a few things that I I couldn't help myself from noticing that more fall into what you described as kind of critiquing the audience. Right. And as a great fan of TV procedurals, I am familiar with the notion of comfort viewing. And I think comfort listening is just as popular, but it often involves leaving very complicated questions unexplored and treating complex Mm -hmm. situations as if they were really simple and straightforward. And that, that just... I don't know. It's dispiriting. Yeah. I mean, part of what you learn from doing that is what you don't want to do. Right. And so in that case, it's like, how do we connect with the audience the way that these folks connect with the audience, which they're really great at, and then avoid the other pitfall of it, which is making the world more simple than it really is. Yes. Yes. Amen. We should also probably also mention here that our Slate colleague, Carl Wilson, wrote the actual definitive book on the process of learning from successful crap, which is Let's Talk About Love, A Journey to the End of Taste, where he tries to make himself like Celine Dion and explore what it is that makes her an international star and on the way, you know, probes the very nature of taste itself. Well, you know, that book has been on my reading list forever. I'm going to move it to the top of my TBR pile when we 
hang up from this call. Yeah, I still haven't read it, but I have never heard a discouraging word about it. I taught it. That was how I first oh. read it, because I, I find when I teach, I want to assign like one thing where we're discovering it together. That's always very Ooh. pleasurable. And so that was the one because I had always meant to read it. And I was just like every time in class, I was like, part of me doesn't know what to say here because it's just like so fucking good. It's such a great <sighs> book. That's all the time we have for this week's episode, but let me leave you with one last piece of advice. I think you should subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, come on, we are awesome. And if you have ideas for things that we could do better or questions you'd like us to address, we would love to hear from you. You can send us an email or a voice memo to working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you would like to support the work that we do, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get bonus content, including exclusive episodes of Decoder Ring and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll be supporting what we do right here on Working. Thank you, as always, to Working Overtime's producer, Kevin Bendis, and to our series producer, Cameron Drews. These two gentlemen ensure that nothing we do winds up being crap. We'll be back on Sunday with a brand new episode of Working, and in two weeks we'll have another Working Overtime. Until then, get back to work. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.